Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, so much going on in the world in our country, but I'll focus my uh, initial thoughts here on the campaign uh, and some events this week. So one, we see the Trump campaign beginning to really enhance and increase their advertising, um, not just in the core battlegrounds that we've all focused on for so long, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, but starting to go into places like Georgia and Ohio and Iowa. So I'd say a couple things about that. One, I mean, that's good news if we want to get rid of Trump. I mean, they're sensing vulnerability in those states um, that, you know, we should be clear, aren't going to be Joe Biden's 270th electoral vote. They would be, you know, his 320th or 330th. So um, they're not core to the enterprise, at least right now. But um, it, it should give us great enjoyment to see the Trump campaign worried about states they thought were firmly in the back. That being said, it's not like they're spending in Ohio and not spending in Wisconsin or, you know, spending in Iowa and not spending in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, they have the money uh, and they have the resources to do both. So um, it'd be one thing if they were completely playing defense, but they're not. But you, you'd like to see that, I think, because it shows that the Electoral College uh, jeopardy is is increasing for Trump. They realize it, despite whatever bluster and tweets and quotes um, campaign officials say. Where they spend their money is uh, is the Bible, so to speak, in terms of where they see the race. So uh, we see great concern there. I'm sure the Biden campaign is going to, as their fundraising continues to go well, uh, they also may have the resources to spread the map even more than they have. Uh, but they'll need to, you know, stay focused on making sure they're doing everything humanly possible to win states that could be that tipping point, that 270th uh, electoral vote. Uh, we saw the, a shakeup in the Trump campaign reports. Uh, I'm recording this on Wednesday uh, that Jared Kushner's orchestrated some changes there. What I'll say about that is um, I guess they thought some heads needed to roll post Tulsa. But, you know, in my years in politics, you know, you don't really see you know, bad candidates and good campaigns. <laughs> so, you know, Trump, by the way, you know, he's got some strengths and skills as a candidate. He won a very tough race in 16. But, you know, right now he's a candidate with a lot of baggage. Uh, and the problem is really him. Uh, it's not his campaign. Uh, and until he adjusts, and I'm not sure he's ever capable of, you know, you could have the best campaign of all time. Um, and it's not going to uh, deliver what you need to. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting about Trump right now is, you know, they clearly want to win this election mostly on from the base. So that means finding and registering a lot of new voters that look like his MAGA base, getting, you know, astronomically high turnout. And I think they'll have some success doing that. But um, they still do need to win some swing voters and even some people who might be unsure about registering or turning out. You know, these are not voters that like his racist uh, behavior here. And that seems to be what he's latching onto. He's really not talking about the coronavirus. There's reports that he's being counseled by his senior team not to talk about it, kind of like what Woodrow Wilson did back in, in 1918, which I think is a mistake. It's, it's what's on people's mind right now, both the economic and health impacts. It's causing him a real problem across all aspects of the electorate, but in particular seniors, where you know Joe Biden is doing 22 points better than Barack Obama did in 2012 with the white seniors. So, um, you know, the coronavirus is what people care about. So he's making a mistake not talking about it. But the thing he seems to spend most of his energies, particularly in social media, is just racism. And, you know, there's a lot of white voters out there who, you know, may be conflicted about economic or health care or other issues between Trump and Biden, but they don't want to sign up with a racist. And so uh, it's dumb politics as much as it is horrific uh, behavior. Um, Joe Biden, I think, gave a really important speech uh, yesterday on Tuesday where he really, I think, with his strongest case to date, really took Trump to task uh, for his lack of leadership on the coronavirus, I think made a compelling a series of arguments that didn't have to be this bad. And, and that's going to be an important part of this election. I think, you know, this isn't just happening here. And you look all around the world, you know, even in places where the virus is starting to to come back a little bit, we're just in a much different place. Um, and that all starts from Trump. You know, the reason people didn't wear masks enough, the reason states opened up too prematurely or never closed down, the reason people aren't social distancing, you know, you've got 40% of the country that believes basically anything Trump says and his state media organ Fox says, uh, and that's the root about so many of our problems right now. So, um, you know, I think Biden 
did a really good job this week and has to continue to do that. Um, uh, if this race is a referendum on Trump, I think it's going to be a really hard race for Biden to lose. And so he has to really keep the pressure there, uh, but also begin to define what he's going to do as president, both as it relates to economic recovery, uh, you know, recovering from the pandemic from a health and leadership standpoint, uh, so many other core issues. Uh, you know, he's clearly got to start talking to different cohorts of the electorate about climate change, about women's health care issues, about education. And so, you know, that's a complicated task. But I think he, he really did a good job of keeping the focus on Trump this week, which is um, important, but he does need to fill in some of these other gaps. And I'm sure we'll begin to see, you know, even more compelling content and messaging uh, around that in the, in the days and weeks uh, to come. So I want to talk about uh, where we are today and how it compares to 2016 with somebody who uh, is an expert on those matters. So we're going to talk to Robbie Mook today who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2016. Uh, Robbie's led statewide victories in states like Virginia and New Hampshire. He ran the DCCC, the House campaign arm, uh, a few years back. Uh, he ran three states for Hillary Clinton in 2008 uh, in our primary uh, when I was leading Barack Obama's campaign, and he won them all. I was really mad about that <laughs> at the time. Uh, but I think Robbie can give us some great insight into what's the same about where the race stands uh, today, uh, as it relates to 2016, where it's different, um, his assessment of the Electoral College, his assessment of some of the risks we have out there as it relates to cyber attacks and voting protection issues, he stayed deeply involved with uh, post-16. And I also want to talk to Robbie a little bit about um, the race for the House. He's the president of the House Majority Pact, and so we have an opportunity uh, to grow our House majority, but it starts first with defending some of those really tough seats we won in 2018 that are not naturally Democratic turf. So uh, I think we'll have a great conversation with Robbie about all things 2020. Robbie Mook, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me. Well, so much I want to talk to you about, but let's start this time about four years ago when you were managing Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, you know, you guys had a pretty significant poll lead over Donald Trump nationally and in the battlegrounds. And I think we find ourselves today where Biden has a slightly larger lead nationally uh, and, and larger leads in the battlegrounds. But we've seen this movie before. So I'm just curious, like, what do you think might be different that should give Democrats a little more confidence? Now, we want everybody to assume we're down 10 points, but I just like your analysis of what may what may be the same, but what may be different about where this race stands uh, compared to years four years ago. Yeah, it's a great question. I, gosh, I almost look at it as what is there very much that's the same. You know, mm -hmm. um, sure, Donald Trump is still Donald Trump, but I guess I'd say first and foremost, COVID has changed everything, and in most discussions I'm in, that that tends to gravitate towards rallies and um, the degree to which volunteers can get out and contact voters. And those things are very important and significant, tangible differences. But to me, there, there are a few things that are much more fundamental. First and foremost, I think it is given the Biden campaign the opportunity to be much more careful and deliberate about transitioning from a primary to a general election campaign. I know for us, we really had a gun to our head that we had to transform from a primary campaign with a few hundred staff into a full-fledged general election effort with at least one staffer in every single state and obviously significantly more in the battlegrounds, really in a matter of weeks almost. Um, and I just think that pressure is not as great uh, which is which is a big benefit, and and that's that's on the operational level, and then on the strategic level, uh, Donald Trump is perceived and treated in a completely different way. I think he's taken much more seriously now. I think he's obviously being held to account in a way that he wasn't in sixteen, and. I can't imagine, maybe save some sort of serious national security incident where service members are, are you know, going into, going into battle or something like that. I can't imagine a, a, a greater example of why presidential leadership matters than a pandemic. And so when Trump acts irresponsible or says petty things, it's in a context of a, a true lack of leadership. 
And I think, whereas before, I think it was treated as a novelty. And so the race, as I perceive it, is seen much less as a horse race and who's up and who's down and candidate A said this and candidate B said that, but really, uh, you know, what kind of president do we want? And I think that's really good. And then the last thing I would just say, you know, there's, there's, um, uh, there's differences between uh, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, similarities. One of the biggest concerns I have for any elected official who, you know, frankly, has like put in their time and actually done work and has a record to judge, which, you know, I think we should, I think we should admire people, right, for stepping in and, and working and being in the arena. You know, that tends to be a liability. And I think this environment is adding up to really make that a strength. And I think Hillary kind of got the opposite. Uh, end of that. And then, of course, you know, I think the media felt a lot of pressure with her to, for everything that they perceived as negative about Trump, they had to say, you know, they had to criticize or scrutinize Hillary in a similar way. And I, I don't think reporters feel that pressure now. And so I don't think you have some of the, the like, for lack of a better term, false equivalents. It's been overused as a term, but I don't think you see that this time. So that's a lot of things, but I, it's created a totally different environment, but, uh, but in a good way, I think. Um, and we should feel good about that. So that's a really helpful overview. When you look at these numbers and, you know, you're a, a student, a PhD student of, of numbers and voters, it does seem that Biden, if he's not at his ceiling in these polls, he's close to it. Right. Uh, and I, you know, my view is, you know, if you've got a poll in Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania that shows Biden up, you know, let's say 49, 43, you know, Trump's going to get some of that back, right? Those are people who are parked and undecided because they're just furious at him, but they may not be able to go Biden. I mean, what do you think, like, what what are these candidates' ranges? Like, what do you think Biden's ceiling would be in battlegrounds? I mean, could he get up to 53, 54? Do you think we're really looking at, ultimately, this is going to be a really close race, you know, within two to four points in every every battleground? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the honest answer is, I don't know, right? I definitely think that Biden can get up to 52, 53. That feels like a ceiling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows, right? And I, and I think so much of this is contingent. Um, well, there's demographics, so I'll talk about that. But so much of it is just contingent on the issue environment. If, if a vaccine comes out, and by election day, we're in a, a debate as a country about how to get the, the economy restarted again. There's a sense that we're emerging from this crisis. Maybe Trump has kind of tamped down his, his reckless behavior a little bit. Hard to imagine that. But let's say we're in that situation. I think it's hard for Biden to, you know, to get far over 50. But if the virus gets significantly worse, or let's say there is a vaccine, but the, the federal effort to try to deploy it is totally botched, you know, right. um, so this could be a, a landslide. But from a demographic standpoint, I think the degree to which we depend on white non-college educated voters to get to whatever that magic number is, 50, 51%, it starts to put a cap on what we can get because I think we can only do so well with that cohort of voters and we can only do so much to improve our performance in the suburbs to register and turn out a base. You know, there's just only so many human beings at a certain point, but more importantly, I think, and when, if we're trying to draw lessons from 2016, it's in States where we're more dependent on white non-college educated voters that our vote is very volatile. And so um, a lot of the reason we're doing well today is because, particularly with non-college educated white women, we're just doing a lot better than we did in 2016. That, To your point, that some of that naturally is going to go back to Trump. I think some people are just sitting out in some of these polls, too. Um, you know, they're undecided, but they're really going to go for Trump. But I think, you know, how well we're doing... Uh, with non-college educated white women in particular is going to, I think, really be the difference between is this a blowout or are we squeaking by? The other thing I would just keep in mind is Trump didn't win by a lot. I mean, even put aside the, the, the national vote, he really squeaked by <laughs> in a number of states. And so for Biden to, and, and by the way, with well under 50%, so for Biden to consolidate a lot of the vote that didn't go for Trump, it's very easy for him, you know, to to get to that win number. Right. 
I want to talk about the win number in a minute, but since we you mentioned demographics, so you were deeply involved in the 2018 efforts to win back the House, um, and we saw really strong performance. You mentioned suburban white voters improving our margins uh, with non-college voters and some improvement with voters over 65. I mean, it's really shocking to me to see these numbers right now. I don't think Biden's going to on election day, win people over 65 by over 20 points <laughs> or tie with white voters over 65. But I'm just curious because you, you're you seeing a lot of data uh, still today. What do you make of what's going on with seniors and how much of his performance, which I think would probably transfer down the ballot, do you think we can hold on to over the next four months? Yeah, I do. I do think it probably transfers down the ballot today. I don't know the answer on seniors, honestly. And I think part of that's I don't have the you know, when you're on a presidential race, you have a really rich set of qualitative input, you know, from from focus groups and so on, and and just other kinds of feedback and social listening you're getting. And I, I just don't have, you know, my suspicion has always been, A, I, I, think, I think older Americans, and I would argue Americans in general, are much more concerned about their health as it relates to COVID than the president kind of recognizes. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that... <laughs> pretty intuitive, actually. But I think we sort of dismiss it sometimes. We're so used to looking at everything through a political lens, but I think people are just concerned about their health. And then secondly, I, you know, I, I, I do think, um, and this is certainly what's driving the president's struggles, you know, in the suburbs and with college educated voters in particular, is um, just his, his utter lack of civility. I think, I think it's exhausting. And so I think that's what's driving that. And again, where I'm in where my opinions are somewhat in suspense right now is in a normal election year, people come, you know, people go home to their parties. I think some people that are on the sidelines right now are going to go back to Trump. The choice gets more crystallized and so on. And so I do think these numbers would tighten up significantly. And I think we, uh, if you're planning as a campaign, you must expect them to, right? You have to plan for the worst. But again, I just don't know if the president can't kind of get his act together, for lack of a better term, he's just going to basically create permission for people to stay away, if that makes sense. Well, it does. So let's let's talk about the win number, because, um, you know, Donald Trump would not have beaten uh, your campaign if he had to get even 48 and a half percent in battleground states. He was able to win in the 46s and low 47s. And, you know, it seems to me a, a big part of their strategy will be to make Biden so unacceptable that people who say, I just can't vote for Trump either again or at all to vote third party. So, one, did the ultimate third party margin you see in 16, was that what you were expecting or was it higher? And do you have any analysis of, because I think it probably benefits Biden, at least in most states, to keep that number down because he's the one that's more likely to get to 50 or 51. I just, you know, would like your, because I think this is not getting enough attention in terms of ultimately who our next president is going to be is, you know, what the what's the win number? If it's 48, it could be Trump. If it's 49 and a half, it's probably not going to be Trump. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. You know, my, my first election well, I, I guess I, I, I did some work in the 98 election, but then 2000 um, was the first presidential election where I was particularly active. And you know, I remember afterwards, everybody blamed Ralph Nader for Al Gore losing. And certainly if you took the votes that he got and sort of pasted them on to Al Gore's win total, he would have been president. But the margins that um, Nader got were kind of child's play compared to what... Right what the greens and the libertarians were getting. And you can, you can sit down with a microscope and slice and dice this. Well, a bunch of it would have gone to Trump or, you know, whatever. I, look, I, I definitely think it took some votes from Hillary. I think it's sort of academic and senseless to, to try to decide whether it was definitive or not. But the point is it did hurt. I think there are two distinct differences today. I think the first is the candidates are just getting less attention. And, you know, that's significant. And then I think secondly, you know, one of the things I really regret about 2016 is I think there was this aura of inevitability that created a permission structure for people to say, well, Hillary's not everything I want her to be. So I'm just going to vote for this third party person here because she doesn't, at the end of the day, she doesn't actually need it. Now, I'm sure some people said, I'm never going to give her my vote. You know, who not? I, I, I don't mean to. Right. Kind of, 
apply my own points of view on that. But I definitely think there was some of that. I don't think that same psychology is going to be as prevalent. Right. I think people are going to realize the value of their vote. In fact, I think it is a danger right now. I, you know, we need to keep reminding people like pedal to the metal, obviously. Um, don't waste your vote. Um, I also worry actually this year about people that there will be hurdles to voting because of COVID and they'll say, well, it's okay because Biden's up in the polls and so it's all good. So I definitely think it mattered last time, but I, I think it will be diminished uh, this time around. And I, I guess I'd say on a more quantitative level, the rule, I'd be curious if you had the same thing. The rule of thumb I tended to use, particularly on house races, was you take whatever that third party candidate is getting in the polls and you cut it in half. And that's basically what they're going to get on election day. And I need to go back and look, but I, I, I think it wasn't cut in half. You know, I no. think it was probably more like two thirds of the people who in the polls were saying they'd go through party actually ended up doing that. Yeah, no, historically that's been true. No, you're right. And, you know, there's some of the research post-election and, and some of the exit polls from 16 showing that, you know, more of the folks who were parked in third party who then went, one of the major parties went Trump, right? To your point, I think, you know, unfortunately, for whatever the reason, there were more people who, if they had to choose one of the two, would have chosen Hillary, but they, they went third party. Um, what can a campaign do about that? So, you know, you had this data, I had this data back in the day. Uh, Jen O'Malley and the Biden campaign will have this data that says, well, there's this cohort of voters, pick the battleground state, Wisconsin, Arizona, who really, it's the, the question isn't be- between Biden and Trump, it's between Biden and third party. Right. Look, this is really hard. And, you know, there's kind of two ways to go at this. I think the easy way to go is to say, raise the stakes, right? Remind people about the risk of President Trump. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that has to be a pillar of any strategy. But the danger in that, obviously, is that you fail to help people understand really the purpose of Biden's campaign. And I think this is a risk for him just overall, right? With with um, with the attention so squarely focused on Trump. And, you know, it's interesting when the campaign ended, a lot of people, you know, would come up and say, well, you, you guys were only negative and Hillary never talked about what she wanted to do and da da da. Um, if you actually go back and look at her speeches, like the actual content of her speeches, she talked a ton about what she wanted to do. That just didn't, that's not what got amplified, right? Or that's not what people heard. That's not what broke through. People say, well, you never ran positive ads. Actually, we ran a lot of positive ads. I, I, but I would argue there wasn't good recall on them, right? I think, I think sometimes, I think we're getting to a point now sometimes where when there's that disclaimer and then the politician talking to camera, people are just like, what, whatever. They tune it out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very easy for me to sit on this podcast and say, well, golly gee, Joe Biden needs to get out there and tell people what he's for. That's really hard to do. That's not a reason not to do it. I think that there has been tremendous success thus far in engaging Bernie Sanders, in particular, as a partner on the campaign. I thought all that went really well, uh, and the campaign did that very well. And, and I give a lot of credit to Sanders as well on that. Uh, and his team. So that's a really important step. I think we had a set of critics on the left that we were never able to engage in the way I would have liked. I think a lot of that, frankly, was because these emails were constantly, it, it was just like there was chum in the water every day. We just haven't seen that with Biden, right, in the same way. But yeah, but it is it is incumbent on the campaign to figure out how to animate that purpose of the campaign so that people, because I think a lot of times people that are voting third party are less institutional focused and a little bit more ideological. And so just saying, well, he's the Democrat and you need to be a good voter and choose the Democrat. That's not good enough. No, it needs to right. be, hey, we're actually on the threshold of an opportunity to do a bunch of really important things. Um, and so, and, and that's what he needs to articulate. Right. Really smart. So you mentioned, um, you know, the turn from primary to general and, you know, COVID has been a uniquely American tragedy, unfortunately, because of Trump's mishandling and, you know, just a terrible period for the country. It, it, you did make the point that, uh, it allowed because politics and this campaign are not, you know, front and center for people, the Biden campaign to build, in a little more, uh, you know, ideal circumstances than, you know, you had or even we had back in 08. 
Talk a little bit about that. I mean, you talked about the need to hire a lot of people, but it's just a fundamentally different campaign. The voters you're talking to, by definition, are they, they follow politics less carefully. They're not sure they're going to vote. Um, primary voters, uh, you know, are on Twitter and on, they're on Facebook and they're watching MSNBC. General election voters, whether they're swing voters or, um, you know, turnout or registration targets, uh, much less focused on politics. Um, so the people you're trying to reach are different. It's not a national campaign, a primary. You go to every state and every territory. Uh, this is a series of governor's races, essentially. So just talk about that turn and how hard that is uh, and what it different race it is. And I think you really have to turn on a dime, right? You know, on on yesterday, you were focused on the primary, you got the nomination tomorrow, you're focused on really an entire different marketplace. Yeah, no, you're totally right. It's interesting. I think I actually think your campaign in 08 and ours in 16 were somewhat similar in that we had a long, a much longer primary. And then that turnaround had to happen really quick, because you have a convention coming up. I mean, that is the problem. It is if I had to kind of bucket it out, it would be first that the organization has to grow dramatically. So we went from about, if I'm remembering correctly, about 600, 700 staff at the high end to 4,500 staff. And we had to make that transition. We started the planning because I felt like we just had to because of time pressures. We started planning in May. Um, and then we were really full steam ahead once the primary ended in June and then into July. But if you imagine going from... May, June, where you're at that um, five, six hundred, or excuse me, six, seven hundred to September, where you're at 4,500. That is, that is crazy. Um, and so you just face an enormous number of logistical hurdles to getting that done. Two, to your point, strategically, at the same time that you're growing, by the way, you have to completely repivot the mindset of the campaign totally new cohorts of voters that you are focused on, completely different map and completely different scale. You know, um, the as you were mentioning, the differences of where primary versus general voters are getting their information. You know, the primary electorate is 60% female. It's 25% African-American. Um, those are just fundamentally different demographics. Uh, than the general, and then to your point, this, this is this is really important, and I, and I think I think it is in w maybe one of the greatest challenges of this race, but it's very much under the radar. Is in contrast to you know when you or I were doing a campaign in let's say two thousand six or two thousand eight, the information environment has become massively splintered, and so. I think the reflex on a campaign is to, and and this speaks to the to the transition between a primary and a general. You know, you're going to the New York Times, you're going to cable news, and so on. In the general election, you have very, you know, what we call quote low information voters, but I actually just think it's different information voters, and they're getting. Let's say you've got a mom, you know, in Dearborn who's got two or three kids. She's a physician's assistant. She's getting her news on Facebook. And I have no way to understand what she's seeing. Like, there's no way for me to kind of know that. I can know what's on cable. I can know what's in the New York Times and so on. So that's one thing if, you know, going back to 2016, it's like, I, I wish I'd been more deliberate about thinking about that, about, okay, I've been communicating through these channels. I got a whole different information scape, so to speak, um, in the general. And then the last thing I would just say is um, you go into this compressed calendar that just moves by itself. You know, the primary is largely, it's propelled by the calendar, of course, but you've got this sort of series of events and you can kind of really sit down and build a calendar. The, the general, it's like the convention's coming, the debates are coming, and um, there's this momentum uh, behind the whole thing and this compressed timeline towards this huge event, which is election day. It's not stretched out like an accordion. It just gives you a lot less time to learn and adapt. And so I think if you don't have, I guess the better way to put it, it's really hard to learn during the general election. And I think politics changed so much between 2012 and 2016. And if there's one thing I would have wanted is just more time to learn. Like if we could have had a few contests, I know that sounds sort of silly, but actually that's what happens in the primary. You have time to kind of learn it. 
We didn't have that. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, basically, if you're running for president these days, 75% of the time spent in the primary. Right. And, and then the main event uh, is over before you know it. But yeah, you, you mentioned um, the mom in Dearborn on Facebook. I mean, now we see Pizzagate's back, right? right. But on TikTok. Right. Uh, it's it's crazy. So uh, I'm curious, Robbie, you uh, know the country and states exceedingly well, you know, districts exceedingly well. You know, a big part of what you did in 16 was was lead the effort to decide, you know, your electoral college targets. I just like to ask you, where do you see the map today? Yeah, I would argue my my thinking on this is pretty conventional, you know, with everybody else's. I think, you know, the problem that we had in 16 was what I just mentioned, which was in the states that were both where most of the voting happened on election day. So they, you know, um, so people were sort of influenced by the full heft of events before election day, but also where we were relying on white working class voters more predominantly to get to that win number. We just saw the vote move. It was very, I say that today, if you'd talked to me October 15th, I would have said, well, look, we, we have a comfortable lead you know, in Michigan right now. And that changed very late in the game. And I think the difference today, first of all, we're just more conscious of that, right? We, that, that was a difference, like you would know better than me, but in 2012, the polling was pretty steady. And so I think sometimes I consigned some of that movement to noise, right? I don't think it, it wasn't. In fact, I mean, a great example is like when Comey did his press conference, our numbers in Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania dipped, <laughs> right? So that should have been like a, a big, you know, billboard sign for us on the journey, like, hey, this can move when bad stuff happens. And so that's why it actually, in retrospect, makes perfect sense when if Comey comes out and does something a few days out, like, <laughs> it's going to hurt you in those states, right? And so we should have been more organized around that program. And that's definitely like a, a regret I have. And so I think the same applies today in that, look, I, I think this thing is going to be won or lost, you know, Florida, North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, you know, Arizona is the new state, I would say in the map, I think Ohio and Iowa, you know, it's funny when people are like, well, you didn't, you didn't do enough in uh, Wisconsin or Michigan, I I actually think we need to get criticized more for doing too much in Ohio and Iowa sometimes. Like we just, we just saw that those were getting harder. And I think we, we felt wind behind our back. So we wanted to press and try to keep the fight there rather than going to other states. Um, just because the race looked different to your point, October 15th, and it did November 3rd, right? It really did. And that's the story is like we locked in a bunch of stuff then. And that reality was just different. But um, look, the other, the other, but when we think about, okay, what are states that were maybe on the periphery that looked fine, but could become tougher? You know, to me, those today would be Minnesota and, and maybe even Nevada. Um, I don't think we talk enough about Minnesota. Hillary won there by less than two points. I think Nevada, frankly, would have been a lot closer if um, that was a state that voted predominantly on election day. You know, I think it's very remote that there, those are problem states today. But that, that's exactly what you or I, I don't want to speak for you, but I think would have said in early, mid-October is, hey, Minnesota is going to be fine, you know? Well, it's always the question with Minnesota. It's like, what are the odds that you win Wisconsin and lose Minnesota, right? And, right. and but you have to, you know, you have to understand, I don't think that's likely, but strange things can happen. Well, well or actually the thing I'd just say on that, what is likelihood that you lose Wisconsin and therefore Minnesota is all of a sudden? Yeah, right. That's, that's <laughs> right. To me, that's like, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to dwell on this, but it, it's really an issue of what the takeaway from 2016 was that the, was that the state of the race was more volatile than I think we'd been used to in the last few years. No cycles. questions, right. And so the question was never, where are we today? The question I should have been asking myself more is, if a meteor strikes, how's it going to look? And that happened. And I think the fact, I don't want to be alarmist, but the same thing could happen now. Look, we, we, saw the, we saw the presidential primary change dramatically at the last minute. We're seeing more and more of this volatility. We saw this in like, the, we just saw the Kentucky primary. These things can move very fast. And so I think that the likelihood of that is very low for Biden. But when you're a campaign manager, your job is to hedge, right? right? <laughs> and to make, 
you know, make the, so I think they, they, you got to think along those lines. Sometimes. No, it's a great point. I think, you know, there's a school of thought. You guys got 232 electoral votes. I think Michigan, most people agree is the one that's most likely to fall most easily back to Biden. Right. Um, I think Pennsylvania is going to be hard, but you know, as a view as well, if you get those two, you're at 268. So you just need more, one more state, not if you lose Minnesota. And that's a reason why you have to have more than just Arizona as the backup. You have to have Florida, have to have North Carolina. So I, um, I love talking about Florida. I've talked to a lot of people in this podcast about it. <laughs> you know the state well. I thought you guys were going to win it uh, based on the early vote. Obviously, yeah. Election Day vote uh, really dramatically went better for Trump. But what's your assessment of Florida? I mean, it seems to be there was a view, I think, raw, I think even before COVID, I think there was a lot of Democrats thinking, well, Florida is such a great Trump state. But I think it's a great Biden state, too. Florida is always going to be close. But it seems to me that, you know, you know, Florida is close to a checkmate. You guys almost won it. We won it narrowly in, in 08 and 12. We saw the closeness of the two uh, governors and Senate races during 18. How do you assess Florida these days? Yeah, it's funny. I We did feel fairly good about Florida because our you know those early vote numbers were so good going into Election Day. I mean, they were better. Better than we better had. Better than 2012. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, you know, and I tell people that because I, I joked with Jim Palmieri, I remember on Election Night, I said, okay, you know. I'm ready for a recount of Michigan. (laughs) You know, so we were, we were worried about upper Midwest, but it was like Florida was our hedge against that. Right. It was, it was, and, and that's why it's important. So important for Biden to compete there because if he wins Florida, it's just so hard to put the math together for Trump. But yeah, I think, I think Florida has been a little bit exaggerated in our party as just this impossible state. And it's really tough. I mean, I do worry about, the challenges that COVID is going to create to voting could be more exaggerated there because I think some of the election administration, you know, the, and certainly the governor, you know, I, I don't think they're going to try to make it easier for Democrats to vote. Right. Let's put it that way. So I think that's, that honestly would be my number one uh, problem there. Oh, gosh. And I, I, I'd be fascinated to hear what you think about this. The problem, I think, for Florida at a practical level when you're a campaign, you can sit down in front of a spreadsheet and say, okay, here are are the different counties and here's what I need to do here in terms of voter registration and and what I need to do to increase turnout and here's where I need to campaign. Staffing it up is so hard. I think we had 500 or 400 staff in Florida and building that in just a few months is, is nuts. And if I had to do it again, I would probably cut it up into three states uh, operationally and, you know, basically south, middle and north. And and just so you have because if you're the, quote, field director for Florida, it's it's this staggering amount of work. And you get so bogged down in just the headaches of logistics. It's hard to be strategic. Right. So I would almost try to have an individual who's your strategist. Um, and, and who doesn't have to kind of worry about implementation, but in, and, and look, the politics there are tricky. It's a, it's just like, uh, you know, with Texas, Democrats haven't really had to build a presidential operation there. The, the politics in Texas are just tricky because you've got some massive metro areas. I think you'd have the same problem there. So that's, that's really the issue. Uh, but I do worry most about voting there. And I also think, so I look, I think it is great that the law was changed to make it easier for ex-felons to be able to vote. I believe in that morally. I think sometimes what we forget is a lot of those folks are going to be Republicans too. Yeah, right. And in fact, I think, I, I assume the majority of them are, are white voters. I think sometimes we tend to think, you know, a lot about African-American voters and a lot of those laws were constructed to disenfranchise African-American voters. But so there's a big onus on us to register and turn out and then get people through the voting process. And I think COVID's going to make that a lot harder. So I'm curious, you know, Robbie, you uh, faced off against Donald Trump in 16, but his campaign's very different now. You have a lot more resources. They're a lot larger. They've been planning for this, which is one of the benefits incumbents have. How do you assess the Trump campaign today? What do you see that, you know, you think they're doing well or give you pause if you're Democrat? Where do you think they're failing? Yeah, I think COVID has been, not not to dwell on that, but it is a big thing going on in the country right now. I think it has been a real problem for them on two levels. One is, I think they were all in on running a really robust field program, frankly, and getting out, registering voters, doing turnout work. 
I think their rallies were an important uh, element of that strategy. And a lot of that's been taken away. Um, so they still have the digital domain, but I think the digital domain really for them was more, first of all, I think a lot of the reporting on them and the work they do digitally conflates fundraising uh, and uh, messaging or persuasion. Um, so I can create a bunch of content that, you know, with different colors and buttons and so on, but the kind of people who click on content tend to be persuaded voters. <laughs> you know, this is why pers- quote unquote persuadable voters are really hard to engage because, cause they don't engage. Um, so they still have that. So I would expect them to, to still have a lot of success fundraising. I do, you know, we can talk about, you know, how we organize in the digital domain. So I think they have that, but you know, for them, like when we talk about a state like Minnesota, their path to victory there is a massive mobilization effort, particularly in rural areas. And when you're taking away that ability to to do rallies and go door to door, I think it really hurts that. And then look, I think they're, it's kind of their strength and their weakness as a campaign has always been, you know, Donald Trump is not held to the same standard as other politicians because people think he's a business person. And so they just give him a permission structure to not follow a lot of the norms. But obviously the inverse of that is he's a nutcase. (laughs) And in this crisis, he's mismanaging, not surprisingly. And so, you know, in it, you'd know better than me, but when you're running a reelect, it's all about like having a plan, defining the opposition very early and executing on that. And their chief spokesman to do that can't even articulate a basic contrast message, right? Biden wants this to be a referendum on Trump and he's winning that right now. Trump needs to re-engineer that to be a choice and he can't even offer <laughs> what that choice is. Right. So how in the world are they supposed to get this on firmer ground for their strategy? You know, and then the last thing I'd say is, you know, I I mean this objectively. I don't mean this in like a petty way. It's not like they ever had an organized campaign. You know, people like people come up to me and and it's totally fair. We lost to to criticize, you know, like, let's take Florida. Well, your field program in Florida could have done X, Y, Z and all that's always fair. But what field program did Donald Trump have in Florida? (laughs) You know what I mean? He didn't. And so I don't know that they're accustomed to functioning in an organized way. And they're now in an even more challenging environment. And so I think some of the mystique is, um, there's a reckoning happening right now. And I think you saw that with that rally, right? Like, they didn't clearly have a good hard count. And, um, and I'm not beating up on that, you know, whatever, this, this stuff's hard, and I failed at stuff, right, too. So, but, um, you know, I think I think a lot of mystique was built up. It hadn't been tested yet, and we're starting to see it tested. And it's, um, I, 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 they've got to totally change this thing if they have any hope of winning. Right, and they have very little time. No, yeah. Trump can't. Trump can't articulate a case for his own second term. He botched that last week, and then he just can't land on the message against Biden. It's fascinating. So no matter. You know, I, I haven't seen too many bad candidates, good campaigns. You know, one tends to follow uh, the other. So, um, you know, I agree with you. You know, I think this hurts them not able to do the physical events. The other thing that struck me is last year, this is, you know, the last quarter of 19, beginning of 20, pre-COVID. They would use the events with like Laura Trump, you know, and Corey Lewandowski and all this gang of fools. Uh, you know, in places like Grand Rapids, right, and, and uh, Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania you know, just organizing events. And they'd have hundreds of people show up, which scared me, right? Because I think, I assume that the campaign apparatus, you know, still would like to acquire some swing voters. Trump shows no interest in that, right? But but it does seem like they're in a place where they have to base their way, kind of like what Bush did in 04 in Ohio to carry. Do you think there are enough voters out there, both in terms of registration and turnout, for Trump to eke out a win in these battlegrounds purely from you know, adding 150 or let's say in Wisconsin, can he go from the 1,400,000 he got against you to 1,600,000 on turnout and base alone? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, there's a few different ways to look at this. One is just to say, to your point, he, 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 he won with significantly less than 50% of the vote last time. And so I don't know that that condition exists again. And then I do think it's harder for him to repeat what he did last time, both because, look, I, we, we, and, and um, I feel like you and I can both appreciate this. We tend to 
fixate on the mechanics of these programs, which, which matter a lot, but it's animated by the candidate. And so if he's not articulating the message clearly, even if the numbers are there, and I don't know that they are, I think it's a big stretch. But if he can't get out and do the events, if he can't articulate the message, what is the volunteer supposed to say on the phone? <laughs> like, I mean, you'd know better than me, but what is what is Barack Obama's field program without Barack Obama? You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I, I just, that's what I keep coming back to is I just, even if you have the numbers on the spreadsheet and it's all there and I don't think they're there, I don't know how they execute when the information environment is so bad and he doesn't have... He's going back to Hillary because that's all he knows how to contrast with, right? And that's not going to cut. Right, right. That and sort of, you know, blatant racism. No, what's it, Robbie, you make a great point. I think there's a view that, you know, his mishandling of COVID, um, you know, his, uh, you know, response to the George Floyd protests are hurting him as swing voters. But you're right. I mean, if somebody's sitting in there in Wisconsin and they're not sure about registering or this is not going to make them more likely to vote for Trump. I mean, so I do think it hurts. You make a great point about this not just hurting the swing voters. So, Robbie, you um, you know, uh, you ran the DCCC back in the day, as did I, that small uh, <laughs> uh, cadre of people who've had that uh, bizarre job, DCCC, uh, you know, the committee in charge of winning back the House. Uh, you were deeply involved in the House Majority Project, and now you're serving as the president as you're trying to both, you know, maintain the House Majority and grow it. So we spend most of our time on this program talking about the President Orange race, but talk about where you see the House as it relates to 2020. And, and I would just say, I think this is also true for the Senate. Because we're not at a point where we are, you know, winning Senate races in the Dakotas, right? And even though we won some House races in places like Kansas, you know, we're not competitive in 400 House districts anymore. If we have a good election cycle, we have to maximize our wins, right? Because if Biden wins and we win the Senate and we maintain, if not add to our House margin, we could have a really tough 2022. But let's talk about what you see as it relates to 2020. What are you seeing in these House districts? We're, we're seeing what you'd expect to see, which is these House races are very much following uh, the, the presidential. Um, the, the polling in a lot of these districts looks really good. Now, we also picked up districts uh, in 2018 that are really tough, right? Their, their DNA is not Democratic. And, and, and by the way, there are 30 sitting Democratic members of Congress today that won in districts that Trump won. And in fact, uh, there's over 10 of those where he got more than 50% of the vote. We were just talking about how he didn't get over 50 in a lot of districts. So um, there are a lot of members that are going to have tough races. And that's why um, this is not just, just about trying to pick up seats this cycle. We have a lot to defend. Um, but we also have really important opportunities because so many people have retired. Um, the interesting thing is that the House map is pretty different than the Senate or presidential map. So if we look at what went well in 2016, you know, Hillary won Orange County, California. She won Harris County, Texas, you know, where Houston is. She won in these, you know, suburban, growing, more diverse um, uh, uh, counties. And that's where the House majority really came from. And so when you look at the map this year where we're defending or on offense, you know, it's suburban New York, suburban New Jersey, Orange County, California, suburban Dallas and Houston, um, you know, there's uh, a Cincinnati, uh, there's even a seat in Indianapolis that's, that's you know, coming on the radar. So um, uh, the, the House Democrats are really going to have to run their own campaign, so to speak, this cycle. Right. So um, you make a great point, which is... Um and that's why so many Republicans have retired. I think they 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 understand their fates are twinned with Trump. And but you know, and this depends. Obviously, there there may be a place where you have a Democratic incumbent who just has a Republican uh, you know opponent who's just a knucklehead, runs a terrible campaign. So they can you know maybe do quite a bit better than a Biden might do. But would you say most of these competitive House races? you know, the the final House tally will be within a couple of points of the presidential. I mean, some might be right on, but that's what we're talking about, right? Pretty narrow band. Yeah. And that's why for folks that are in districts that Trump, that Trump got over 50%, they, that, that, that spread is going to have to be a little bit bigger for them. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, for better or for worse, like if you look at a candidate uh, like Joe Cunningham in South Carolina, who's in one of the most difficult districts, or Kendra Horn, who's in suburban Oklahoma City, 
um, there's not a lot of presidential activity there, right? So mm-hmm. that cuts either way, right? It's either, um, you know, and th- this actually goes back to 2016 in some ways, you know, we didn't want to have an extended fight in the upper Midwest because we didn't think that was a winning you know, equation for us. So for a house candidate, they have to be asking, do I want a longer race where I'm just duking it out for months and months? Or do I want a pretty short race that doesn't give people a lot of time to dwell on how I might not stand with President Trump on everything and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of bake in the, the partisan aspect of the race. You know, the thing that we're seeing in a lot of these campaigns is, these guys have phenomenal job approval, you know, and oftentimes we're looking at people with over 50, even sometimes getting close to 60% job approval in a district that Trump won, uh, sometimes won over by, by more than 50%. So people like these folks, they need to calibrate that it's that the race is about them, not about loyalty to Trump or typical partisan divisions. Right, right. So I'm curious in the Senate, you know, it wasn't too long ago um, where we had all four senators in the Dakotas and we had senators all throughout the South. We don't have that anymore. So I think the ceiling, um, you know, for Democrats in the Senate right now is probably 53, 54, no better than that. The days of us getting 60, I think, are not uh, in front of us. Where where do you see the ceiling on the House? Like, you know, so 18 was an election that couldn't have gone any better for the most part. Um, you know, we saw in 06 and 08, we had two elections in a row, and we saw what the ceiling was back in that era. If we have a really good election this time in 20 and are able to, you know, protect some of those vulnerable House incumbents you mentioned, or at least enough of them, uh, and add some, wh- what do you think the ceiling is? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think... Um, obviously pending what happens with the presidential, but I, you know, we're at, we're at two thirty three. I think right now it always changes a little bit with openings and so on. You know, it would be great if we could get to two forty. Um, if we could get over two forty, that would be phenomenal. Um, I, it, part of it does it obviously just depends on how many of our existing incumbents do we hold on to, you know, in 2008, as you recall, I think we only lost one incumbent in the midterms and we'd driven so far into the map in 06. So if it's another wave like 2008, where we're just really not losing very many people, you know, I think picking up double digits is entirely possible. But if we're losing, let's say five incumbents or something like that, well, you know, then uh, it, it gets harder to get into double digits because you're looking, you know, you're having to win 15 to get a net, a net gain of 10. Right. We are going to get two freebies in North Carolina right off the bat because of redistricting there. But Right. Yeah. So the days of us thinking we could, you know, get over 260, uh, people should be more modest about what we can do here in the House, I think, and in the Senate. Yeah. So, Robbie, one of the things you've done post-16 uh, is really lend your voice and your expertise to work around cyber protection, election security. Uh, you're doing a lot of work with the Belfer Center at Harvard. Talk to me about, about that. And I guess through the prism of, um, you know, you mentioned um, there's going to be state, you know, sponsored voter suppression. Uh, you know, Trump's, you know, shouting as lo- you know loud as he can to try and make it harder for people to vote. You'll have folks in Florida and other states maybe doing that. But we still have cyber both within our country and without, um, you know, election integrity. Talk to me about what you're working on and, and what, what which I'm sure a lot of this does keep you up at night. What do you most worry about as it relates to this election? Yeah. Well, just quickly, the, the work I started doing on this was coming out of the 2016 election. I was just concerned because something pretty real had happened, you know, where it, it, it wasn't just our, our theory that Russia had stolen those emails and leaked them out. I mean, it was, it was proven, like there were Cyrillic letters, on, you know, metadata on the, on the emails when they were put out. I mean, it was just, you know, the, the, it, it it, it was um, the first headline actually about the DNC hack said definitively that Russia did it. It wasn't, it wasn't believed. It was, it was a fact in there. And, and it just troubled me that, and it's hard to go back in time because this has been sort of litigated so much now, but after election day, it was still like, well, we don't really know if that happened. And, and, and it was concerning to me. And I um, happened to meet up with Mitt Romney's manager from uh, uh, 2012, we were, we're part of a, you know, a small club of people who've managed campaigns and then even smaller club of people who, who didn't, uh, win. And, uh, um, he, uh, I had no idea. He told me that, uh, the Romney campaign had been and hacked by the Chinese and it had, had caused huge, um, problems for them internally. It cost them a lot of money. 
Uh, and at that same time, uh, Eric Rosenbach, who'd been Ash Carter's chief of staff at DOD, you know, again, just serendipitously was talking to him. And I said, hey, we, I want to do something about this. So the three of us kind of got together and Eric, who went over to uh, the Kennedy School was very generous to give us space there uh, and, and some funding to do this. You know, we set up a project to just try to lend some tools to campaigns to, to protect themselves. Because again, just nothing was being done to, to stop this from happening again. We're way farther ahead now um, than we were. And actually, we've pivoted our work more to focus on um, election officials and providing them with tools to respond to information operations and so on. You know, I think it's going to be very hard to make serious progress on this until the Trump administration is gone. It's just, it's just, you know, I think there's some very well-meaning people at, um, uh, you know, at the DOD, at uh, DHS that are trying to work on this. But when you can't acknowledge the problem, it's really hard to solve it, you know? And so that's one thing. But then secondly, honestly, I'm less worried right now about the Russians like hacking into a voter database, although they could, if they wanted to, I'm more worried that this election is going to have, we're seeing this already. It's happening right now. We're seeing massive logistical problems and that creates doubt and uncertainty about the results. And that's where you'll see the Russians come in and try to whip up. Can we really believe this election result and that that to me in some ways is more is as poisonous as any database hack or any you know tabulation change Um, because it's the same outcome it's uncertainty Um, and my hope and 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 here's the deal these election officials are are totally under resourced Um, you know an interesting fact is my understanding is there are only two high you know universities in this country that offer any kind of professional training in election administration I mean, we, we, you know, this should be a certified profession, just like any other. And so I hope coming out of this election, if there are problems, and sadly, I think there will be, there is a, there is a, a call to totally reform this system. We need more resources. Um, we, need, we need to professionalize, um, offer, offer more professional support to the folks running this. They're good people, but they, they, they don't have the money and the training. Uh, that they need. And the system, like we're seeing with so many things with COVID, so many essential services, they're not, they don't have what they need to be robust when when trouble comes. No, you make a great point. As concerned as we should be about further intrusions from Russia or China or North Korea, and we got to state that, you know, for these countries who usually are adversaries, and now Trump idolizes them, you know, they couldn't in their wildest dreams imagine an American president this week, you know, who's kind of uh, – and so they're going to do a lot of things, I think, to, to get him to stay in office. But there's a lot of problems on our own shores. And you make a great point about both resources and professionalism. I mean, of all our policy challenges in the world, I don't want to – I don't want to – um, underestimate the challenges of elections. But, you know, you kind of can model out how many people are going to vote, how many will vote by absentee, how many people are going to show up, how many polling locations do you need, workers, machines. But, like, this is a solvable problem. Um, and it's what's amazing is of all the things we do in the country now, even getting a driver's license in some states is more painless than this. Like, it's the thing that's the hardest for people when they can do anything they want in, like, a matter of minutes. So this does require... Uh, I think a, a whole mind shift, shift. I agree with that. So um, you mentioned the Russians could uh, hack into databases. You know, some people suggest that they or the Iranians or the North Koreans could actually affect the tabulations. But you seem less concerned about that. Uh, any uh, any sort of insight in why? Well, I and well, first of all, you just made a really important point that. This isn't just Russia. You know, there right. are a number of adversaries. We've already seen, you know, it's documented the Iranians were trying to hack into the Trump campaign. It's not hard to imagine why. I guess what I'm saying is I am worried about that. But to me, we're hacking our own election <laughs> by not resourcing <laughs> it well. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, like yeah. it's insane that we can't set up enough polling places. Like, it's insane that anyone should have to stand in line. And so, Sure, I could sit here and fixate us on the hacking problem, but it's it's a it's a it's a family of problems. The better resourced our elections are, for example, if every election jurisdiction there are eight thousand jurisdictions that have sovereign control over their elections, by the way, because a lot of states delegate down to municipalities. Okay, if every single one of those had the resources to have dedicated cybersecurity professionals protecting their networks, then I could sit here and say, you know. 
I think the chance of people getting in is dramatically lower uh, than it would be, but uh, than it is now. However, the other way to look at this is we're never a hundred percent safe. Period. They're never, you know, we can never guarantee that your election will not get hacked. The question is, is it resilient enough that people can still have um, trust in the outcome when it is? And so, for example, if you have, you know, good machines with OptiScan that read paper ballots and you sequester those paper ballots somewhere and you do audits afterwards, like there are all these things where even if, or, or again, if you have good cybersecurity professionals that can detect a breach and go do good forensics to see what happened, there's so many things we can do to build trust. And I just think by under-resourcing this system, we're creating a huge trust gap that I would argue is just as dangerous as one hack that the Iranians might do. So it's like, it's, it's on all fronts. No, I think it's, it's both a provocative, but correct point. And that's, you know, whenever I've been in races, uh, where, you know, polls suggested you're going to win, um, you know, people say, Oh, you must be feeling good. You never feel good because ultimately you need to see the support that's showing up in research materialize an actual vote. Right. So, and still you start unpacking returns that night and seeing if it matches up to what you thought. But so that's the thing with, you know, that's hard enough to do, uh, even when voting is not going to be as challenging as it is this year. And that's the thing. I mean, it sounds like you, this is a different race. Trump's now an incumbent unfairly, you know, Biden, um, uh, seems to be getting, um, you know, less of the sort of negative, relentless coverage Hillary got. So there's reasons to be optimistic, right? But this is the thing I think that should keep us all working hard is um, there could be a cliff where, uh, you know, the lines and the confusion, um, you know, and it doesn't take much, particularly if this race tightens, if, you know, just one or two people per precinct decide they're not going to participate in an election that looks like a shit show, um, that could cost us the presidency. I mean, do you agree with that? Or? 100, well, 100%. Yeah. And, and also, again, what I think some people in 2016 didn't think their vote was important. Like, like if I could do anything and go back, if, you know, if I could pick one thing, it would be, you know, the day before election day, lighting our hair on fire and saying, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. I would have liked to have done the same thing. I, like so many people are overconfident. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And we said it, like, you can go back and look, I was saying that night, this is going to be close, but like, we didn't say it with enough urgency. And, um, and so that is, I really do think that's a danger. And in some cases, I hate that I'm having to say this in some cases, Someone is going to, they're going to request a ballot by mail. It's not going to show up. They're going to need to go up and show up at that polls. They're going to have to put on their, you know, their mask and their gloves and have their hands on. And they're going to have to stand in line for a few hours. Unfortunately, that is what it is going to take for some voters, proportionately people of color, by the way. But like, if somebody doesn't feel that fire in their belly that, you know what, this is unfair and it's crazy that in the greatest, you know, the richest country in the history of the world i'm having to go through this if they don't feel the fire in their belly to stand in that line and stick through we could lose and that that is a more important message than anything else <laughs> now we have to see this through i mean i think the other thing about 16 so there obviously was polls and uh you know people like me and others were overconfident but a lot of the voters maybe didn't see that i think there was also a view that like a guy like trump can't win right now right. that we can know we can win right. that's the hopefully partially the antidote to this is we know what it's like I think, you know, people don't want four more years of it. And so even though it's tragic uh, that folks are going to have to run through that gauntlet to vote, you know, the hope has to be, you know, enough will. But that is the thing that should keep us. We need to head in this election, in my view, with a surplus yes. uh, and a healthy surplus uh, that so we can afford a little erosion in terms of what happens, uh, you know, around the election. Well, and you brought it up. It's such a good reminder. We Things looked better in 16 than in 12 going into Election Day, for example, in Florida. You know, the early right. vote looked better. And so even if everything's looking amazing, uh, we can't take it for granted. You know, the other thing I've been preaching is like flatten the curve, go early, get this vote in. Early. Right. You know, the, the more people that vote early, the shorter the lines are on election day. So if you know you need to do this, get it done, because then you're one less person making that line longer on election day. Well, and despite all Trump's histronics, every core battleground state has vote by mail, Pennsylvania being the right. new addition, right? So so folks can exercise that right early. It's a great point. Well, Robbie, um, I could talk to you all day long about it. I know. This, <laughs> thank, yeah, thank you for your thoughts and your guidance and your continued leadership to protect our elections. And hopefully we can talk again down the road. Thank you so much.
great conversation with Robbie. He clearly knows his numbers uh, and his districts uh, as well as anybody. A couple of things really struck me. One, um, I think he laid out a pretty compelling case about why this is different than 16. Trump's an incumbent. He wasn't back then. Biden is um, doesn't get the same you know, venomous treatment on social media and, and from the press that Hillary did. He's a more acceptable alternative to more of the electorate. Again, uh, a lot of that driven by misogyny. But I mean, that should give us some comfort. But Robbie also, you know, made the point that, you know, these poll leads that Biden have right now are, are not real. The race is going to tighten. A bunch of these voters uh, have moved undecideds, but they're going to vote for Trump. But it should give us confidence that, you know, this isn't just a redo of 16, that that Biden's leads right now are more meaningful, even though they are exaggerated. Uh, the second thing um, I thought it was really uh, important that Robbie drilled into our heads here is, you know, the threat we face uh, on Election Day and the weeks leading into it. It's going to be harder to vote. Some of that's just because of COVID. A lot of it's because election officials are under-resourced. Um, there's going to be places, he mentioned Florida, where there'll probably be some malfeasance, uh, deliberate attempts to, to suppress the vote. So that's important to remember that whatever support you have in polls or what people tell a campaign really doesn't matter at all unless it materializes in an actual vote. Uh, and so I think Joe Biden, and this would probably be true for Senate candidates and House candidates, uh, are going to have to head into the election period, um, you know, when we start early voting and voting by mail with a surplus, because we're probably going to hemorrhage some votes because, you know, as Robbie said, somebody could get, they asked for a mail ballot and they don't get it. So they have to turn up on election day and they know that's going to be uh, wearing masks. It's going to be hours long waits in some places. So um, the burden here is much higher, I think, in terms of what we have to do to win this election. It's not enough just to secure the professed support of people. It's got to materialize and vote under maybe the most challenging circumstances we've ever seen in this country. So we all can, can be helpful there, uh, volunteering our efforts to work on with local election authorities through local campaigns to make sure we're talking to voters about what it's going to be like, uh, encouraging them, as Robbie said, get that vote in early. If you don't want to deal with wearing a mask on Election Day, vote early. And in just about every battleground state, even in the expanded list we're seeing now, uh, people can vote by mail with no excuse. That was pre-COVID. So, um, you know, encourage people to exercise that option. That's the best thing they can do to make sure they get their vote in safely and they don't have to endure lines. So I hope you enjoy that conversation with Robbie Mook and look forward to being back with you next week. <laughs>